A Thoughtful Faith Podcast is a production of Mormon Stories and the Open Stories Foundation. All donations to A Thoughtful Faith are tax-deductible and go directly towards keeping the podcast alive and towards building a community of support for Mormons like you. To support the podcast or to join the community, please become a monthly subscriber today at athoughtfulfaith.org. Hello, my name is Sarah Collette, and I'm here with a Thoughtful Faith podcast, and I'm joined today by Dr. John Sorensen. Welcome. Thank you. Um, today we're going to be talking about the historicity of the Book of Mormon, Book of Mormon lands, and we're going to start off by having you introduce yourself a little bit. Um, please tell us what your relationship is to the church currently, and a little bit about um, where you come from and who you are. My relationship to the church is steady. I've uh, been active all my life, which is now stretched to 88 years. Uh, I myself have never had serious questions about the church or about the gospel, but uh, I realize that other people do, and as a matter of fact, some of my own family are disaffected, so I'm thoroughly sympathetic with the point of view that there are other ways to look than, than my, my way, but we all make our choices, and so it is. Um, my uh, background is I was born and raised in Cache Valley, attended Utah State, went away to World War II, which took about three and a half years, came home, decided I would go on a mission, went to New Zealand and the Cook Islands. How old were you when you went on your mission? Uh, 23, 23, yeah. But before I left for the mission, I... uh, met a young lady, and we decided to get married. So we married, and I went as a married person. Wow. She stayed home and had a baby. Wow. Which she loved. That's our oldest child. He's now 63. Now, how, how long ago did they stop, did the church stop doing, allowing that? I'm, I'm not familiar with that. Well, they hadn't even thought of it, really. Okay. It had not become an issue. At that time. I suppose there, I knew three or four in my mission that were married, and I suppose that in some cases that became some sort of an issue. Was that uh, difficult? Uh, well, it's not easy anyway. So, uh, yes, it was difficult, but not, not insuperable. Rather more difficult for my wife than for me because she had the baby. Right, right. <laughs> right. But that's what she wanted. So uh, I came home and I had been in the physical sciences previously and I was trained in the 
in the um, course of the war in the Air Force. I was trained as a meteorologist at Caltech. And uh, so I'd had enough physical science. I was not enthusiastic about it. And when I came home, I went all the way to archaeology <laughs> at BYU. How did you develop an interest in archaeology? That's quite a shift. Well, uh, that's a good question, how it, how it happened. It happened on my, on my mission. Uh, we lived in pretty primitive conditions. My companion and I were the first missionaries on the, in the Cook Islands. And uh, if you, you may have read uh, John Groberg's book on Tonga, and ours was a little before that. So it was rough and ready. And uh, it made me some kind of an anthropologist just being there. So uh, I don't know I, I, why. I got, maybe I was inspired or maybe I was just bored with mathematics. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I devoted myself wholeheartedly to education and went through and got a master's degree in archaeology at BYU. <clears throat> then... Uh, Ended up teaching for a couple of years there as an instructor before going away to UCLA to uh, get my PhD in anthropology. Okay. Archaeology is a portion of anthropology. I guess I would have been an archaeologist, except during my first semester at UCLA, my, uh, my mentor, the person I'd come to study with, had a heart attack and died. So, uh, so that was. I rather had to go horizontally. Uh, I was fortunately I was on a National Science Foundation predoctoral fellowship, and uh, uh, so I was well provided for. But I obviously had to keep going to school. So uh, I completed the anthropology degree and had a hard time getting finding a job finally did come into BYU and began to teach anthropology. It had never been taught at BYU before. So you... I started it. Wow. So at the time, had you intended to teach? Was that where how you had wanted to take your career, or was that... I, I never thought of a career. Really? <laughs> I, I thought of a job. Right, okay. Yeah, so... Uh, and I enjoyed everything I did... So it didn't much matter to me, but I enjoyed teaching, and uh, so I set up a program at uh, in the department of there. There was a department of archaeology where I had taught before, but I taught anthropology in the sociology department, which then became sociology and anthropology. Okay. And uh, I was there for six years. Went away on leave. I had become a, a social anthropologist, and I, I was concerned with the modern world. And uh, uh, Mormon, the Mormon, Mormon tribe, as well as any other tribe, right. was quite interested. Well, with a background like that, I I went into uh, 
I was employed by a, a think tank in Santa Barbara, California, which was concerned with insurgency, uh, guerrilla warfare. And some of their concerns were parallel to mine. So I, I was there for five years and didn't intend to come back from my leave, except that I lusted after the university, <laughs> uh, contracting and getting government grants was just a little bit too much for somebody with a tendency toward the academic. So I did come back, and uh, they helped me set up a corporation, a research corporation here to do their social science research. For Santa Barbara? For Santa Barbara. Oh, wow. Okay. And that lasted for two years, and I, then I decided to come back into the university. Okay. Uh, eventually, uh, after several interim assignments, I, I became uh, chair of the Combined Anthropology and Archaeology Department. was there for eight years as chair of that before I retired. Okay. My retirement came because I had a heart attack. How old were you? Do you mind if I ask? Oh, I, I uh, never had the qualifications to, to, for a heart attack. I was always slim and fit and so on, but uh, I blame administrative stress. Right. <laughs> you can always blame stress. <laughs> yes, I think that's the way it, it works out often. Anyway, I, I've been retired for 28 years. It's wow. the longest job I've ever, ever held. <laughs> and what do you think? <laughs> no, it's the best job I've oh, ever good, had. Good. Yes. Well, when did you first develop an interest in the the history, the historicity of the Book of Mormon in Book of Mormon lands? The first, uh, probably the first class I took at BYU was from uh, M. Wells Jakeman, who was professor of archaeology. And uh, some of the base, basic ideas he passed on to me were challenging enough and interesting enough that I took them up as a challenge myself. I didn't accept all that he said, but they posed very interesting intellectual questions. Can, uh, can you give us an example of something that he said that you didn't necessarily agree with? Uh, the limited geography. Uh, that uh, the scene of the Book of Mormon lands was in Mesoamerica, northern Central America and southern Mexico. Um, that, like most people in the church, I had never th even thought about it, never thought about where anything was. What year was this? It's 1949. So this idea that that it was a limited geography is very old. Oh, yes, it was much older than him. Okay. It, it, only a, f a few scholars had uh, held it and put it forward, one of which happened to be Brigham Young's son. Really? Colonel Willard Young, who was a West Point graduate, and he th thought things through and realized that, well, where were their cities and where were their books? Wow. And there's only one place, and that's Mesoamerica. So... Um, uh, Jakeman had found through study of traditions in Mexico a number of parallels that he thought were 
powerful. And I, I went on from where he was, and I just went in a somewhat different direction. In 1947, no, 1952, 1952, in this winter, I went to Mexico with the first expedition of the New World Archaeological Foundation, which Tom Ferguson had put together and found some funding for. And uh, uh, two students, um, I and uh, my good friend Gareth Lowe, who became a professional archaeologist as a result, uh, we went to Mexico and participated with four other people, two of whom later became absolutely the, the best archaeologists in Mexico. Wow. And uh, at, uh, at that point, had you converted to the idea of a limited geography? Yes, I was, I was, yes, I was all for that idea. But the question for me was, where exactly would this be? I was not so much interested in the geography as such. But I realized that if I was going to make comparisons of the life of the people, I would have to be in the right spot or else I was in the wrong spot. So uh, uh, that was my reason for thinking in geographical terms. And I, I thought a great deal about it and uh, have settled the question for me and for quite a few other people that... Uh, a certain area of southern Mexico is the land of Nephi, or Guatemala is the land of Nephi, and southern Mexico is the land of Zarahemla. So when you started to um, really kind of look into this limited geography, did you get a lot of resistance from colleagues? Was this generally accepted among your colleagues? Well, <laughs> it's hard to talk about colleagues because there weren't any. <laughs> you were it. Yeah, well, uh, a small coterie of uh, students around Jakeman and two or three a amateurs who were influenced by him. So we were all helping each other with this point of view. Um, no one else paid really any attention to it. Was the university interested at all? Yes, they thought it was a good idea. Uh, Johnny Widsow, the apostle, had been... Uh, strong for uh, studies of the Book of Mormon from an academic point of view. And this was one area where he saw this would be desirable to do work and try to settle some things. So I'm, I'm, I'm surprised. I, I didn't know that the idea of a limited geography was so old. And um, what I'm wondering is, if this, if it is, you know, this old of an idea, why do you think... Um, kind of the other idea of all of North America or the American Indians being more of the geography. That, that position is uh, sort of a default position. If you simply look at a map of the New World, there's a narrow neck of land, and there's a land southward and a land northward, and South American continent and North American continent. Well, it's obvious, isn't it? I mean, and that's as far as almost everybody's thinking went. Okay. So uh, it's it was just, just that they hadn't thought about it. Okay. And they still haven't, for that matter. 
And um, I guess this is a good opportunity to ask you at the beginning, you said that you were, you had disagreed with your, um, your professor originally. And I assume it was because you had also been under these same misconceptions. Did you find that it was, that it challenged your faith or that it was a difficult question to address, especially because, um, you know, prophets had commented on the, on the topic, or did you just find that, I mean, how did you resolve that or how did you approach that at the time? That was never, uh, faith was never an issue for me. Uh, I, I was sure that the Book of Mormon was sound, was true. After all, I'd been in the service and the, and the, the mission I was fully confident that everything was as it was supposed to be as far as the story was concerned. So the only question was, well, where? Okay. Uh, as far as I was concerned. Okay. And there was no one else to tell me some other view is a better view. And especially, I think, maybe because you were the pioneer, yes. you kind of understood that nobody had gone and done their homework yet. No, no and, and church authorities hadn't said anything useful. Mostly they were agnostic on geography. As a matter of fact, uh, they, they'd given up publishing anything about it in the church magazines for 20 years before, simply because nothing intelligent had been available to publish. Okay. So uh, they, they were just sort of in limbo as far as the geography was concerned. So you really were filling a need. Yeah, well, it was a, certainly a need for me. Right. An intellectual need, though, not a matter of faith. But it required a great deal of study. There are about 500 passages in the Book of Mormon that have some reference to geography. All the previous thinkers about it, Latter-day Saints who'd offered opinions on geography, had picked up a few, a, do- a few dozen, a few score references and they picked and choose what they intuited to be a, a solution and then they picked verses that fit it uh, but with 500 you know you have to examine them all and that is a substantial intellectual task so uh, that's that's where so many are now in question I suppose where there are questions, it is because they simply haven't thought enough. Right. Well, and I, I'm as I'm sitting here thinking about 500 passages. I mean, you would have to know the landscape of Mexico or the yes. area yes. extremely well. How did you get to know the? I mean, well, how first, did that happen? First was six months in, on the expedition in 1951. I studied it from maps before, uh, but uh, that made it up close and personal. And uh, after that, it was more maps and a few more trips. So when did you start to um, really basically make this a focus of um, of your career? Because I think you're kind of the expert. When did that really become a major focus and thrust. Well, that's interesting because of the academic history I told you before. It didn't become a focus. It became a minor focus because I didn't become an archaeologist. 
I became an anthropologist in in a broader, much broader sense. But I always had uh, a distinct interest in the archaeology side. I don't know if I would have been a good archaeologist or not, but I I had the feelings and the tendency I would want have wanted to be. Okay. So uh, it was all, always off to the side with me. But my experience in Mexico was such that it was not very far off to the side. I, I And so I paid attention as a, uh, I'm not sure how to put it, a subsidiary concern right. all through my anthropology career. And I studied, I wrote some private papers that circulated to friends and former students. And... Uh, as time went on, and uh, especially this last retirement period, 28 years of my life, I've been, been able to devote most of my professional attention to the archaeology side that I began with, but had to let lapse for so many years. Right. People kind of maybe think of you in terms of a Book of Mormon anthropologist or a Book of Mormon archaeologist, and you've mentioned that that isn't necessarily a fair categorization. Do you feel that people miscategorize you or unfairly um, unfairly categorize you? Well, I, I suppose I don't really know how anyone characterizes me except that they put a label on me sometimes, but I just say, well, who knows what the label means, whether I, I need that label or not. I just go ahead and do what interests me, regardless of what labels anyone puts on me. Do, the, do any of your critics assume that you're biased? Well, I'm sure they do assume that you're biased because you're LDS. But do you feel that um, you are biased? Can you speak to your own bias? Oh, sure. Of, of course, uh, I am biased in that, uh, in scientific terms, I'm biased because I have an assurance of the value of the book, regardless of whatever science says about it. But uh, they are biased because they don't know about the book. Okay. So when you say the value of the book, you're, you're speaking from a spiritual term. Yes. Okay. Yes. And a practical moral uh, concern also. Okay. So maybe your critics don't give it enough weight because they don't understand the the weight of the spiritual aspect of the book. Well, uh, yes, I guess we could, I, I could say that. But for me, the fact is that they simply have not paid enough attention to the Book of Mormon to deserve an, to have an opinion. Okay. So they're not familiar with all 500 passengers. No. Oh, heavens, no. Okay. Over the last 28 years, you've devoted a great deal of your time and, and energy to studying this problem. And the complexity of a limited geography is, is vast, I assume. You've written a book or are in the process of finishing a book called um, Mormon's Codex. And can you kind of, I know it's hard to summarize that many pages of work, but can you kind of give us an idea of what that project is? Yes, I I. In order to do so, I need to go back in time, though, Okay. to the, my first book, on okay. the Book of Mormon, called An Ancient American Setting for the Book of Mormon. That was published in 1985, and uh, 
I had I had prepared that book actually as a as a set of eight papers uh, in installments to appear in the uh, the ensign uh, for J. Todd the editor and uh, he he had had me he had heard, learned something of my interest and had me come and talk uh, once a week for three months to he and his staff where I lectured on much of the material I had and convinced him that this has got to be published in the magazine. Well, I, I wrote a, a series, actually, of seven articles, uh, and he started to see if he could get them published. And uh, over a period of seven years, he couldn't. And why, why do you think he couldn't? That's, that's a very good question that neither he nor I could ever answer. Okay. One reason was that certain, uh, let me say, older members of the general authorities with older ideas uh, did not think that the church was ready for new ideas. So they just were willing to let things float along where they were. But uh, we had some interesting interchanges. At one point he said, as a matter of fact, if I could just get a copy of this stuff to Camilla so she could read it to Spencer, <laughs> he'd be convinced. <laughs> Go through the wife. <laughs> it, 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 it didn't work that way. And the people in correlation were somewhat outraged that knew something new was being offered. Uh, as a matter of fact, the head of the correlation uh, at the time was the former president of the uh, Eastern States Mission, and uh, he was a Hill Camorra man from New York, and nothing else could uh, could even approach that in his conviction. And he he was attached to the idea that Joseph Smith yeah. would know the answer and would know yes. that that's the Hilcomora. Yeah. And those ideas are s- still being plumped around by some people, but uh, it's interesting that I suppose nobody would have said, well, my carburetor is doing something wrong in my car. I'll bet Joseph knows how to fix that. <laughs> uh, Okay, point well taken. <laughs> well, uh, one is expert in what one is expert in. And uh, Joseph, as a matter of fact, in Nauvoo, shortly before his death, found reason to uh, discover the ruins in Central America. And he, he wrote in the Times and Seasons, we have just discovered that the Nephite lands were in such and such, southern Mexico. Really? That's published in the Times and Seasons? Yes. He was the responsible uh, general editor, and John Taylor was the actual editor at the time. Wow. Uh, uh, The most important part of it is to realize that he could be instructed, could make discoveries, so uh, whatever he said before was kind of an off-the-cuff opinion, I right. suppose. 
Uh, that's how I see it. So he had been speaking without the back, well, without any real true information. Right. Okay. And after all, the uh, the great expert on the Book of Mormon couldn't possibly be Joseph Smith, nor Brigham Young, nor anyone else, but Mormon. Mormon is the one. And so the, I have spent a great deal of time and effort to develop, to frame the parts of the Book of Mormon that do talk about geography in such a way that I can reconstruct Mormon's mental map. What did, what did he think the geography was? And it is wholly consistent, 100% consistent. And he had himself been over most of the territory. So whatever he says has to be the geography. It trumps everyone else. Yes, trumps everyone else. Okay, so going back a little bit then, you were, you were right. trying to get these papers published, right. and the church was resistant. F finally, there was a discussion in the 1970s. Um, Truman Madsen was involved, and some of the BYU people were involved, a few, with a committee of the general authorities to address the question of criticisms of the Book of Mormon that were being made by critics of the church, but from the their criticism of the Book of Mormon was often, but it doesn't match up with what we know about the Indians. Well, then it didn't match up about the Indians because it wasn't about all the Indians. Okay. And uh, this committee finally came to a conclusion, if we had a limited geography view, then most of what the critics are saying is fruitless, useless. Right. And this is in the 70s? This is in the 70s. Okay. Yeah. And uh, as a result of that, I was commissioned by them to, or told to, by them to, juice my seven articles down to two. Okay. And they appeared in 1984 in the Ensign, uh, not as geography as such, but uh, all focused on Mesoamerica. And uh, uh, then Desert Book was given the green light to go ahead, which they'd not been given before, and they hesitated, to go ahead and publish my pizzas as a book. Okay. And that was my ancient, an ancient American setting. Uh, and that was published in 1985. 1985. Okay. Well, I, I continued to work on many aspects of the, the general problem. It wasn't a problem for me, but it was an intellectual problem. And, uh, uh, finally I concluded that if I was going to have one more say, it would it better be now. <laughs> uh, so about 2005, I made the decision that I would update. It's not really an update of the book, but take a, a new angle to put forward everything that I've known, have learned about the Book of Mormon and archaeology and anthropology and see if I could get one more book out. So I 
I wrote that. That's the current book project. Uh, Deseret Book turned it down because obviously it wasn't going to sell. I mean, it's a very complex book. And uh, finally, uh, the Neil A. Maxwell Institute agreed to publish it. And uh, Deseret Book then said, well, if you're going to publish it, we might want to co-publish it anyway. And, and that remains to be for them to decide whether they will or not. But it's been almost three years in editing since wow. I finished the book. So it's quite complicated. It is. There are uh, 1,300 references in the bibliography and <laughs> thousands of footnotes. But it's my last say. And they're willing to work with me, but they insist on checking everything, which is why it's taken forever and ever and ever to get at it. But we're nearing the end of the road. And uh, as a matter of fact, I've done the first check on their editing for every chapter, 26 chapters. And uh, then I will have to finish going over the rest of it one more time. And it has, has had maps and so on done. And uh, early next year, I hope, it will come out. It's called Mormon's Codex. Mormon's Codex. The argument is, uh, different than the ancient American setting, which people saw as primarily uh, geographical, but the, this book is... Incidentally, geographical. It sets the stage by showing where I'm going to look for parallels. And uh, the, uh, the uh, argument is that there are so many elements in parallel between the Book of Mormon on the one hand and the archaeological record on the other hand that... How they came to be has to be explained. Right. Okay. So when you say how they came to be, you mean how the two... How did Joseph Smith get them? You know, he put them in. He dictated the book. And there are hundreds, hundreds of parallels, some very striking, some more general. But when they're all seen as a huge complex, they're totally convincing. They're either convincing or else they will shut somebody up. This is a very good, um, I mean, this is very interesting and it's a good point to make because I think, I mean, and, and I am part of this crowd having no real background in studying the geography of the Book of Mormon. The only things that I ever hear about are the criticisms of the things that people feel don't correlate. So we have, you know, kind of a handful of these terms that we've, you know, horses or elephants or chariots. But what you're saying is that the amount of correlation is, is dramatic and, and vast. Okay. Yes. Yes. Okay. And that's what the book includes. That's yes. what your book includes. Yes. That, and I, I have spent a good deal of time to try to deal with those, uh, I would call them small-scale criticisms of the book, the horses and so on. And it turns out that there's a great deal of complicated information available in scientific circles 
that show that they are not nearly the problem that common critics, run-of-the-mill critics, think they are. Now, when you say run-of-the-mill critics, what do you mean? That they just don't know the information? They don't know the information. Even the archaeologists who've been critical, like Michael Coe, they don't know what they're talking about. And why, why wouldn't they know what they're talking about? Because the field is so vast, the literature is so huge, they read what they read. They're specialists on what they're specialists on. Uh, the, nobody is a generalized specialist on okay. all of the, all of the material. So the details of the literature slip past their attention. For example, the, there are many who have said that there are no metals in, in Mesoamerica before uh, 1000 AD. Well, that's the general, that's what students are taught, for example, by the archaeologists. It's not true. It's just not true. I've, I've located several hundred references to metal specimens that date on back to earlier periods, but nobody has ever collected them all. And when an archaeologist reads about one, he says, oh, well, that's an exception. That's, there's something wrong with that. Because because the norm is to accept that... The paradigm will not allow these exceptions. Okay. So they're fighting their own paradigm as far as the Book of Mormon is concerned. The Book of Mormon doesn't is not in their paradigm, therefore it's out of their paradigm. So you're saying, okay, I, there are hundreds of, of, of places where metal is mentioned... In early Mesoamerica period, yeah, or in archaeological reports, wow, specimens have been found. Okay, and you have all of these in your book. No, I don't have them there, but I, I, I have them elsewhere that I cite. Okay, uh, yeah, but I mean, we could go They're to mentioned. your bibliography yeah. and maybe. Okay, okay, right. that's and the same with with horses. There are there have been horses horse bones discovered in Mesoamerica. You're kidding. Yes, yes. But uh, maybe uh, only two or three of us in the whole world, I think, know the literature well enough to say where those references are. Um, give me an example of where... Well, there, there's, a, uh, there's a, a cave uh, in Yucatan, the Yucatan Peninsula, which has been excavated, and they found horse bones scattered on back in the period of the pottery. So give me a rough a rough year here. I'm I'm not familiar oh, well, with the period uh, of the pottery. On back uh, several thousand, probably one thousand BC. Really? Yeah. Wow. And earlier. <laughs> I, I I had no idea. And uh, the excavator simply says, "Well, this is a problem. We, we don't know how to, how to make of this." And that's the end of the story. And they just write it up in a report, and then... Yeah, it, that's that. And no one ever reads it. It doesn't get that's right. widely published. And that's not the only case. There, there have been several others that are a little less definitive. but And there are cases in North America where horses have been dated uh, by radiocarbon dating uh, down in 80 times even. Okay. 
Wow. So I'm just going to ask at this point, is this a problem that occurs within archaeology regularly? I mean, outside of the Book of Mormon, do people find that they, that there are kind of general ideas that are upheld, even though there is evidence coming forth to yeah. dispute it? Can, do you have any examples of that? Yeah. Uh, one that I'm deeply involved with. Okay. I've written extensively for for uh, over 60 years about the question of were there boats that crossed the ocean and brought people that had some influence. And uh, in the last uh, few years, last six or seven years, a geographer, a geographer colleague of mine at the University of Oregon, not LDS, who is convinced that there were boat trips. We have jointly done a 600-page book that has evidence that really cannot be contradicted that show that about a 100 species of plants are found on both sides of the oceans, some in Europe, some in Africa, some in Asia, and also in America. And they could not have come by the Bering Strait. And how how come? Because they... Well, they, they, they'd freeze. Okay. <laughs> oh, okay, I got you. Yeah. Okay. But they're the kinds of plants that would have to come by boat. They cannot be blown across thousands and thousands of miles. And we have all of this in the words of geographers... Botanists, all kinds of specialists, and there's just no question about it. Furthermore, there is resistance from your from the archaeological and anthropological communities. Have you gotten resistance to this idea? Yeah, we published the book. They they are determined, determinedly ignoring it. They don't want to talk about it. And it's just because it goes against. What's already kind of well, established. Yeah. All right. We know. We know uh, how things worked. Okay. So you're rocking the boat a little bit. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. And I, I have a few colleagues, most of them, all, essentially all of them, and non-Mormon. But uh, we're all boat rockers, and uh, our evidence is strong and firm and uh, undeniable, in in my view, undeniable, right? Abundant. So maybe down down the road, well, somewhere, somewhere, there will be a change in paradigm. Okay, okay. So um, and I don't know. Maybe you can speak to this or or not. But um, I've been told that there was a similar issue with um the ma- mastodon and when. Um, when he, he was supposedly extinct, by what year yeah, yeah. or what what era? And we've found newer bones. Can you say anything about yes, that? Yes, the uh, the Book of Ether, of course, in, in the early stages of the account, mentions there were elephants. It doesn't say they were used. There were elephants, and they knew them and had something to do with them. They may have hunted them or whatever. Okay, they used ivory. Now, just for our audience, will you kind of state the year or not? That kind would of, be on the order of 2000 BC. Okay, 2000 and, BC. And not after. But 
there is there uh, there is fragmentary but substantial evidence from finds here and there and the other place, some in Mexico, some in North America, some in South America, of uh, uh, these elephant creatures having lived and died much later than the supposed post-Pleistocene, post-Ice Age extinction. Okay. Usually it is supposed that by 10,000 B.C. they were gone. Right. Uh, it turns out that's not so. In Florida, there's a case where as, as late as 100 B.C., there remains of a, a mastodon. 100 dated, B.C.? Dated by radiocarbon dates. And other dates uh, ranging somewhat earlier than that. But and so published accounts of oh yes, these are real, real by and by scientists. Okay. And uh, as a matter of fact, uh, somebody drew my attention just recently to an article in uh, a periodical, an online publication called Science Daily. It's this sort of the standard newspaper of scientific developments, and uh, here is a report of more. Uh, archaeologists or more uh, elephants, American type elephants, being found. And they, in their headline, they say uh, down to 2000 BC. Okay. So, <laughs> I mean, so that would be about the time of the There journey. are no Mormons involved in that. Right. Okay. Yeah. And uh, since there was only one mention by the Jaredites, it was a reasonable supposition that. They, they were near extinction at that point, and they may have become extinct at that point. Right. So when we're reading about the Nephites and the Lamanites, yeah, they wouldn't nothing. be having... No, they wouldn't. Any contact. No, no mention, those. certainly. Okay. So, uh, you know, again, it's a matter of paying very close attention to uh, the details of the literature. Right. And hoarding it to, and keeping it together for enough years that it may becomes a substantial argument. Right. Um, I don't know anything about this, but I'm going to ask this question just because as I'm sitting here, I'm curious. But um, as far as plates, you know, we, we think the Book of Mormon was, you know, gold plates and they had the plates of brass. Is there any account of any plates being used for recording? Not, a, not in the form of a book. Okay. There are some uh, metal pieces, thin. Uh, first of all, gold was hammered into sheets that were as thin as paper. Okay. Oh, that, wow. That really we, thin. That, that's, we know that. Uh, whether they were put into books and used like paper, nobody has confirmed. So do we have like pieces of these gold plates, or how do we know that? Yeah, there are pieces, oh, pieces okay. with inscriptions on. Uh, I, I am astounded by that. <laughs> I'm finding this so fascinating. There are a couple of references to traditions that say that they were used as the basis for writing. Um, traditions, so like oral traditions? Yes. And, oh, okay. Yes. Okay. But nobody has seen the product. 
So we, what we have are just little tiny pieces of this gold, maybe leaf kind of paper yeah. with inscriptions on it. Something of that kind. Okay, but we don't it's, have any. It's not definite. It's not definitive. Okay. So it is, if you think of it, a problem. But then uh, it's also a problem in the old world because they're, they're very rare there. So um, how old are these pieces? Do you mind if I ask? How old are they? A.D. times, uh, medieval times. All right. And the language on it, what what kind of... You're supposed to be Mayan. Okay. Nobody knows in fragmentary form whether it's Mayan or uh, some other language that's represented with Mayan characters. Okay. Maybe this is a good time um, to address the issue of language. I know that Dr. Ko talked a little bit about Reformed Egyptian. Can you talk about what we assume about the language of the Book of Mormon and what we know in in relationship to that? Yes, I'll be glad to. The Mormons make many of the worst assumptions. Uh, they suppose that there was a language, a tongue, spoken tongue, uh, called uh, Egyptian or Reformed Egyptian, the Book of Mormon doesn't say anything of the kind. Okay. It says there were characters that were called Reformed Egyptian. Uh, like we might say uh, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9 are Reformed Arabic characters. But that doesn't imply that we're Arabs or anything of the kind. It's okay. just that the characters used to represent the things or the the uh, meanings are, are were like the Egyptian, and there have been studies that show that the same precise principles behind Egyptian and Chinese writing, the same principles behind them, are the same as in the Mayan writings. So there are studies that... But the characters them? are different. Okay. Okay. So it's the principles used to create maybe the characters? Different characters are changed over time as, the, as, as occasion demanded changes. So we're taking this literally and thinking in terms of they spoke a language called Reformed Egyptian. There's nothing. As a matter of fact, Moroni says, no one else knows our language. Well, what does that mean? I don't exactly know, but it means that no one else knows our language. Okay. It's an unknown language to us in our time. So So if so if it's we're going with limited geography, that means that the the people have come over and they've integrated with other communities that yes. are already here. Yes. And so how easy would it be or how difficult would it be to maintain language from, I mean, is that? You mean the spoken tongue? Yes, the spoken tongue. Well, I think it would have been very difficult. This is the when, the, when the Nephites first learned about the people of Zarahemla, they said, well, the Mulekites came and they didn't have any written records, so they no longer speak Hebrew. That's that's a fantasy. That's not so. 
Okay. Any uh, any language uh, that's only four or five hundred years old, ninety percent of the terms are the same. It's mutually intelligible. So the Mulekites, if they had spoken Hebrew or some modified version of Hebrew, and the Nephites, if they had spoken some version of Hebrew, should have been able to understand each other because right. it was only a few hundred years of separation. Okay, so you're But they couldn't understand each other. Therefore, they must have been different languages. Now, who changed what? We have no notion. Right. So you so just so I understand, you it's like Spanish and Portuguese and French. They've all got a similar base right. and, and verbs and things like that. Right. All, okay. So like the romantic languages, the, if that was the case, then they would have been able to establish some form of communication. Right. right. Okay. So you're saying that their language was lost completely. Well, not necessarily. It's it's possible that the uh, scholars, so to speak, the record keepers, who are uh, high elite, they're not commoners. Okay. So they're maybe They may have been writing in Hebrew, but the Hebrew tongue represented in Egyptian characters, for which we have some old world examples. Like what? Well, Hebrew, uh, the Hebrew language, tongue, Represented in Egyptian uh, inscriptions found in Palestine. Uh, I I should say, furthermore, there's not just one uh, system of writing in Mesoamerica. There are at least 15. Wow. So there was all sorts of different languages. Yes. Some may have split off. Uh, There's a limited amount of information, so we can't trace the whole linguistic history, but uh, there are upwards of 15 and different And this is Guatemala scripts. and southern Mexico area. Yes. 15 in just that area. Yes. About no. How many well, square miles are we looking at here? Well, I don't know. Nephite and Lamanite territory, uh, where the events of the Book of Mormon took place, uh, couldn't have exceeded 600 miles in length and 300 in width. So a relatively small and area. That, compared with Palestine, is much bigger. You know, Palestine is just a little weeny place. So if they're talking about all the land and uh, are using Palestinian terms, then uh, that's not much land. I see. I see what you're saying. Okay. So they're coming from a very limited geography themselves. Very limited, yes. Okay. And so they would have thought of this this country, that or not this country, but this land, this that territory, as being very large. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Let me ask you this. I I know that there are a couple of movements um, today to of of members wanting to establish the land of the Book of Mormon in North America because I think they are dedicated to the things some of the things that Joseph Smith has said about the lands of the Book of Mormon and the, the American Indians. Why do you think these attitudes continue to persist? Are we I mean just from a personal perspective, do you feel that we're afraid? I I I can't say why people think as they do, but I'll give you an example from uh, the interview that uh, 
President Hinckley had with uh, Mike Wallace on television. Wallace said, I've read the Book of Mormon, but I don't believe it. And President Hinckley said, you haven't read it enough. Well, the people with a limited perspective haven't read it enough. Uh, Joseph Smith said the uh, city of Manti, it is reported that he said, it is reported that he said that the city of Manti was someplace in Indiana. It's impossible. The city of Manti is in the land southward, south of the narrow neck of land. And there is no narrow neck of land. There's no narrow neck of land except the Niagara uh, Strait. And north of that is Canada and the Arctic. Oh, come on. You know, uh, and and where is the where are the highlands of Nephi? Because the highlands of Nephi are always up. One always goes up and down. Um, uh, I saw a map pulled on me recently <laughs> by somebody who had invested enough effort that he had written a hundred-page book uh, presenting this geography. Of, of North America. Of North America. And the land of Nephi is all the Rocky Mountains. Uh, and he says, somehow the South was added to the land of Nephi. Well, the dimensions are insane. I mean, that there's not the slightest possibility in Mormon's geography of any such thing at all. Okay. And the only river that's been offered for the River Sidon is uh, uh, the Mississippi, or something equally big. Right. And yet, Alma and his soldiers at one point crossed on foot across the river to fight the Lamanites. The Mississippi? Oh, it's, it's almost... It's very difficult to speak rationally of okay. these ideas. They simply haven't read the book enough. Okay. So the 500 passages need to be examined and examined and examined. And examined over and over again. So this is also, I think, just from a personal perspective, do you feel that eventually the church will make any kind of an official statement about the geography that they represent in the Book of Mormon? Or do you think that they'll leave this completely to the scholars? I, I would be doubtful that they, they would ever make a statement. I mean, why why should they? Because then, in, a, in one sense, they've crawled out on a limb what if the scholars are wrong? So what if you're wrong? What if I'm wrong? Yeah. I I don't maintain that the geography I hold to is absolutely, absolutely, definitively sure. Okay. It is not. It is plausible and it is highly probable. But I'm not sure that we'll ever know, short of talking with Moroni, that it is what... We think it is. Right. Um, let me talk about DNA because a few years back, I, was it 2002? Yeah, I, I think yeah. it was in 2002. Yeah. There was a report published that the, um, someone had done a study of the people's 
um, of America and found no connection between their DNA and the DNA of the people of Israel. Can you speak about that? Yeah, a little. It's, uh, this is pseudoscience. Um, the, the person involved is not a geneticist. He did not know uh, human genetics at all. And so he was confused and uh, misled by trying to read the technical literature on the human genetics. And the, the literature on human genetics is very complex, uh, vast by now, far greater than when he was writing. He could make believe he'd read quite a little of it, but it's a hundred or a thousand times as great now. So he... We simply don't know and may never know on the basis of DNA. Now, why? Do you know anything about why? Yeah, because uh, you have to get blood samples from... The blood samples that are used are from tribes all over North and South America, okay. and Middle America, too. But uh, only maybe 40 or 50 tribes. Well, there were 1,500 languages spoken in the New World. 1,500. 1,500 languages spoken in the New World. So what is an adequate sample? 40 or 50? I see. No, no, we don't know. We don't know, scientists don't know, and may never know. Okay, so because we're taking, we're trying to find, it's like a needle in a haystack. Uh, if we were to dig up a lot of skeletons and take uh, the DNA from the skeletons and could do so and would do so and then wait until... Uh, and they dated back to the Book of Mormon times, and most of them won't. Uh, and we did the same thing with Israelis, with Israeli, or Israel, Israelite skeletons. Then we might have a basis for comparison. Okay. But we don't. Right. So you're saying that going and and testing indigenous people, American indigenous people now is is always going to be inadequate in finding all it's of uncertain it. at it's least uncertain. Okay. it's uncertain okay so we could i mean we the dna report said that these the indigenous people of the americans are descendants of people that came over the bering strait so the so would that indicate that the vast majority of the people american indians mesoamerica down in south south america are that the the vast majority did descend from people oh, yes, that came over. Oh yes, of course. So, and the vast majority, I would say, of the Book of Mormon people did also. Explain that a little bit more. They would be mixed. Okay, so the people that came over from um, from Israel intermarried. They were a minority, a small minority, and the minorities are always overwhelmed. There's a very good example of that. In Guatemala, the, the famous book of the Maya Quiche Indians, the Popol Vuh, is a, an account of ancestors and their relationships among each other and subject peoples. 
but they're about a Mexican, a group from farther north in Mexico that came into Highland Guatemala and dominated the local peasants. And then uh, would uh, what would their DNA be like? And what would their language be like? Well, uh, as a matter of fact, John Carmack's, um, John Carmack of the 70, his brother is an anthropologist working on Guatemala. And he did a, a study year, many years ago of trying to establish whether there could be traces of these Mexican lords who came in and took control, uh, archaeological, linguistic, and he could barely find a few traces of them. And uh, he made the conclusion, well, obviously, they intermarried with uh, a much larger population, and they may have kept a few things separate, but mostly they cannot now be distinguished from the base population. And so this is just, this is an example of the same exact problem outside of our LDS community. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So we've, we've kind of focused on some of the problem areas, what some of the things that the critics use to, um, you know, disprove the Book of Mormon. But just, from a personal standpoint, and I, I've read your you presented it fair, um, an overview of Mormon's Codex, but just from your own personal, you know, the, the points that you would like to share, what are some of those correlations that people might find interesting, one or two? Well, I don't know what people would find interesting. I find them all interesting. They, they, they're like a, not like a, a tree as a representation, but a mosaic. Or, uh, uh, what, what do you call a tapestry? Tapestry. The connections go all directions. So all together it makes a picture. All together picture. it makes a picture. Uh, and is that paper, the paper that you sent me, is that published? Yeah, it's published on the FAIR website. Okay, so I would recommend at this point that I would recommend it too. I'm asked often, pick out the one or two best. There are not one or two best. There are 50 best, 80, 100, something of that order. And I, uh, but, you know, here's one. It says in uh, traditions, and these were recorded by the Spaniards in Yucatan, that wars were conducted between rival groups for generations until until blood was drunk. Now, uh, one of the Lamanite leaders says they will fight until he drinks, until he drinks Moroni's blood. So that would be a reflection of the of the culture. Well, how do you explain it? That's the point. How do you explain this? And why would Joseph Smith put that phrase in? Uh, I can see why Mormon might put it in. He was a soldier, and it would strike him and might even have been current in his day. But uh, why would... If somebody made it up, made the Book of Mormon up in New York, uh, 
Sidney Rigdon say or somebody of that ilk, how would they have known anything of this kind? Now, that's just one. But when there are hundreds of them, then the question is, how could anyone in New York or New England or in the United States or anywhere in Europe have come up with any such list of parallels when they nobody knew anything? There was not even known to be a civilization okay. in Central America in Joseph Smith's day. Okay. That so was not known until 1840. Really? Okay, so Joseph Smith predates even the discovery of, yes. of this area. Right. Okay, that's the, interesting. And what he and his colleagues read in 1842, 1842 was a, book, a famous book by uh, John Lloyd Stevens. Uh, I can't remember the name at the moment, but that was the first English-language book of exploration of the famous sites of Central America. And it went through multiple editions, uh, reprinted many times in England, and then eventually in the United States. And it was first published in 1942. And uh, Joseph Smith found got a copy sent by uh, the church representative in Washington, D.C., Bert Heisel, and uh, he sent a copy of that book to Joseph in Nauvoo, and they read it. And that's when he said, we have just just discovered that uh, the cities of the Nephites are where the Nephites were. The cities of the Maya are where the Nephites were. So do you think that, that, um, that Brigham Young's son then maybe got that idea from Joseph Smith? Is that... I don't know. Or he may have got it from logic that just... By his time, and that would be near 1900, by that time there was considerably, well, a certain amount of information about the ruins. How much would Joseph Smith have known about, um, like, the Plains Indians and the cultures of um, the Indians in the, in the Americas in the West? There was, there was no knowledge. No, no knowledge at a popular level and no reliable knowledge at a scholarly level. There were no scholars who went west. Were there books published at all that you know of? No, not until uh, there, there may have been in the 1830s, but about then would have been the first not really reliable ones. Do you, um, I know that there are criticisms that the Book of Mormon is related to the Spalding Manuscript. Do you know anything about that? Well, I know that, uh, yeah, that's an idea that's revived every now and again, but it's been so thoroughly discredited that even the critics who have believed in the, in the past can hardly stomach the idea now. Um, I mean, it's just absurd. Have you read the Spalding Manuscript? No. But do you know that, or I mean, do you know of any evidences that say that that, um, that it has any kind of um, archaeological or anthropological accuracy? Oh, no, it has, it has nothing. It doesn't even purport to. It's, it's fiction. It's, it's a fiction about a party of Mediterranean voyagers who came in to the New World and 
became Indians in a sense. Okay. So what you're saying is Joseph Smith would not have gotten any of these correlations no. that you write about from anyone else? No. Okay. There's no one. And, and there are still a, f a few people who maintain, well, Oliver Cowdery knew Solomon Spaulding in New York, or we don't know that he, he was apparently acquainted or was in the same town as, but it's a stretch to suppose that he knew this man or that the man had written anything at all of this vein when Cowdery knew him. Cowdery never said a single word about uh, reading anything anywhere. Uh, it was all new to him. So um, uh, this is kind of a question that I've asked a little bit before, but now I want to apply it to LDS people. We've talked about some of the same um, paradigms that exist in the uh, archaeological archaeology community outside of the church but now let's bring that into the church are any are do you know any non-lds scholars that have looked at your work and seen parallels or acknowledged that there are some interesting questions posed have you gotten any kind of validation from the community outside of our own no massive deafening silence okay so nobody's commenting no no Oh, once in a while I hear something from somebody else on the outside, a sneer or so. Okay. But uh, I'll just relate a little incident. <laughs> Some years ago, Mike Coe was uh, speaking at BYU at some kind of a some kind of an archaeological forum. I can't remember what the circumstances were, and we'd known each other for a long time. And I went up to him after to congratulate him on his talk, which was a technical talk, and it was fine. And <laughs> he said, John, I don't want anything to do with you. You're too intimidating. <laughs> he may have been half joking. <laughs> but uh, uh, that... Distance, uh, separation is pretty common. And uh, John Clark, the BYU Mesoamerican archaeologist, is very famous in the, in the scientific community, finds the same thing, that nobody wants to talk to him about it. Let's just keep it quiet. Let's just not raise the subject. And from their point of view, I think it is because they know that he might have some sensitivities about it. Uh, not that they know anything, except what their, te their teachers in graduate school told them, which is prejudiced, because they didn't know anything either. It goes on back, and uh, they've absorbed the paradigm, or they wouldn't have got the, their PhD. So... Uh, Silence is all I ever get. Okay. So was there was there ever a point I mean I know that you've spent most of the your retirement working on Mormon's codex but was there I mean was there ever a point where you kind of reached a point of frustration and you know just maybe anger or 
you felt upset that nobody validated outside of the community validated your work, or were you at peace with that? Well, I hadn't presented it until now. I so, presented it some, you know, but in, in piecemeal. But now this book, uh, Mormon's Codex, is addressed jointly to archaeologists and Latter-day Saints who ought to know better and might might be willing to learn. Okay. Do you, what kind of a reception do you expect? None. Silence. No, I, I don't expect there to be any response. Okay. Because uh, how does the archaeologist handle it. Right. He has to do or say something. And that goes uh, against. It's, it's, uh, he's betraying his, his own kin, so to speak, if, if he accepts what I say. On the other hand, the information is so documented, so complete, so full, so overwhelming, that he would be remiss if he didn't accept it. So the best thing to do is not to read it. <laughs> but I will, I will send a copy, an inscribed copy, to Mike Coe and to a few other people. And we'll see if they'll what their response pay attention. Maybe they will, maybe not. I doubt it. Would anybody, I mean, I have no, no, you know, frame of reference as far as um, archaeology and anthropology is concerned, but could I pick, could I read it and, and understand oh, it? Or yes. would it be very difficult? Oh, yes. Okay. Uh, it might be somewhat difficult, but I've been told that I, I write at a knowledgeable level. Okay. It's, it's not technical. It has reference to, t to technical literature, but I've tried to make it thoroughly understandable for intelligent well-read Latter-day Saints. Right. This is kind of moving into more of a spiritual, uh, the spiritual side of things. But um, do you understand or have empathy? I mean, you, you mentioned that you have family members that have become disaffected. Do you have empathy for the people who have looked at the overall assumptions and maybe traditions of, in respect to the Book of Mormon and found doubt and found reason to to question its authenticity? Oh, I have empathy for them, yes, certainly. But uh, I don't know what to do about it. That is to say, I, I can't phrase a moving sermon to shift them from a position of where they are to where I would like to see them be. Do you feel like it is a problem that the church could address? I don't see how they could. I, the church tries to address some problems, but mainly they come closer to fundamentals. Not multiplying words, but just finding the basic words. And then the person has to find out for himself, right. hers, herself. In your own experience, have you read the Book of Mormon and followed Mormon's promise at the end? Have you had that experience of knowing that the Book of Mormon is true? Oh, yes. Many, many times. When was the first time? When I was a child, okay. really, I, I've never doubted that it was true. It seemed obvious to me as soon as I could read that it was true right. for whatever reason. 
And so this, this, all of this archaeology is always um, driven by a conviction that you have. Well, it's not driven by, it's accompanied by. Okay. But uh, I, I've not ever been trying to persuade anyone to force, uh, I mean, forcefully to persuade anyone about their belief. It's up to them what they believe. But it's obvious to me that it is what it is. And I hope that many people will find the truth of it. And as a matter of fact, one of the last things I say in the in the book manuscript is, even if archaeologists don't um, like the religion, well, they don't like the, the native religion of the Popolvu either. But they study it all the time. It's absolutely fundamental to knowing about the people because they know it is a native book. I say, well, why shouldn't Mormon's Codex be in the the same boat? Study it. Whether they convert or not, that's a matter for them, not for me. But I would like to see it established that the Book of Mormon is a native book. And then people can face the question, how did Joseph Smith get it? Well, somebody will come up with uh, an idea that somebody smuggled him something, that he translated it, who knows how. No one can explain it. But there will be ideas, there will be theories. They won't be strong, but... Um, but but those, if people would just face the question, how did he get this book? Then they can come up with whatever answers they come up with. Okay. Um, we're coming to the end of our podcast, but is there anything left that you'd like to say that you haven't gotten an opportunity to say? Um, nothing in particular, I think. I I, I think the book is uh, is real, it's authentic, it is what it says it is. Joseph Smith got it in the way he said. <laughs> Incidentally, uh, there's a Harvard archaeologist who's poking fun at fan- fantastic theories of archaeology. And one of them uh, that he talked about was the Book of Mormon. And he said, the Mormon faith is based in archaeology, in digging in New York in early 1800s. That was an interesting shock to me to hear (laughs) him say that. (laughs) Uh, I have to say, to a limited degree it is so (laughs) (laughs) it has been a pleasure thank you so much for speaking with me and for taking the time to to uh help me understand some of these issues and hopefully help our listeners understand some of these issues this is sarah colette joined by john Sorensen with a thoughtful faith thank you Come 
Thank you for joining us today on A Thoughtful Faith. To discuss this podcast, check us out at athoughtfulfaith.org. The music from this podcast was generously donated by Lisa Frazier. Hear more from her at lisafrazier.com. See you.